Friday, December the 8th, 2023, the great and good of Irish music and culture and politics and of Ireland got together to say farewell to Shane McGowan, one of our most important artists, singers, songwriters, lyricists, you name it, who passed away recently. In attendance were Glenn Hansard, Johnny Depp, members of the Dubliners, members of the Pogues, Nick Cave, people flew in from all over the world to pay tribute to an absolutely iconic figure in Irish culture. As I was looking at the footage of the funeral, which was uh, broadcast live and there was video cameras and all sorts of things going on there, I noticed as the band in the church on the altar sang Fairy Tale of New York and as people danced in the aisles to remember Shane and the great work that he did, especially at this time of the year that he has become so synonymous with, I saw a young singer that I've known from my own part of Donny Carney in Dublin. I've known his father and I've known him for many, many years. That young singer is a man named George Murphy. Many listeners, slightly older listeners, will remember when George shot to fame almost two decades ago now on the Eurostar TV show, which was a reality TV show uh, looking for new talent, new musical talent. And George actually came second in it, but has carved out an absolutely magical musical career for himself with number one records when he was still in his teens. And he's moved on from there to making a pop album and then going back to his more folk and ballad uh, roots. So I took the opportunity to give George a call and to see if he would take us behind the scenes of this iconic funeral for such an iconic figure and he was more than happy to talk to me. So this is a a little special bonus Global Gale podcast presented by me, Philip O'Connor, talking to George Murphy about the passing of Shane McGowan, what Shane's music meant to us and what it was like to be there as everybody paid tribute to him before he was laid to rest. The, the wonderful George Murphy. I'm going to have to start this conversation in the most Irish way possible. How's your dad getting on? I haven't seen him in years. <laughs> Phil, do you know, something just before you, you, you called me there, I was on the phone to him. Uh, I was talking to him two minutes ago uh, to ask him if he'd come up for the for the session that we're playing tonight. So um, he said he's going to try his best, but he said his, his throat is a bit sore and... Uh, and he he's still gigging away though, um, and and he's he's flying it. Yeah, it's 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 going good, you know. Fantastic. Now listen, we, we'll get back to Georgie and uh, Georgie Senior, should I say? I've always just called him George, and now we have to sort of separate between the two. Of you, um, yeah. I I just happened across a photograph. This is why we're talking, George, because like I saw this photograph of Glenn Hansard and you just over his shoulder at Shane McGowan's funeral. I was going, well, that's obviously where George was. How did you come to be involved in that? Well, um, Glenn basically was kind of asked by Victoria Shane's um, Shane's wife to um, organise the music for the for the ceremony, and he got on to me and he asked me would I sing a song at, at the ceremony, and I was com- just so honoured that he taught me and and included me uh, to to be singing a song, but the goalposts kind of kept moving on him because he didn't realise at the time that the likes of Nick Cave was going to make himself available and that the Pogues were going to make themselves available. I mean, the the, the Pogues are living in all different parts of the world uh, and they all flew in to play and all of a sudden he realised that he was after kind of inviting a few people to perform that, you know, 
now maybe weren't going to get that opportunity to perform because obviously the likes of Nick Cave and the Pogues and some of the kind of bigger names were, were going to take uh, priority on the day. So he said to me, look, you know, I, I can't still offer you a full song, but I'd love you to jump up with me when we're doing Fairy Tale in New York and sing a verse um, and let's give him a good old send off. And look, I was just... I was blown away that he even thought of me, Phil, and I was blown away that uh, he wanted to include me. And just to be able to say that I stood on on the altar with the Pogues, the, probably the last time they'll ever be assembled together to 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 send off their front man, who was, you know, arguably the, the greatest songwriter ever to come out of this country. So to, to be there and to be included along with, with these icons, um, was just it, it was you know it was something to behold it was breathtaking to be honest you know did you have to pinch yourself because I find this you know I'll be standing there in a mix zone with Cristiano Ronaldo and every now and again the 12 year old kid of me from Dunny Carney pinches me and goes how on earth did you end up here did you have that feeling when you were in the church in Nina George when Nick Cave sat down at the piano um, that blew me away you know I I, I found myself Kind of pin that was a pinch myself moment, you know. But I mean, a lot of these other people. I mean, I, I think of you know Glenn Hansard and Declan O'Rourke and and uh, you know Imelda May, like they're all kind of superstars as well. But but, but I suppose because they're Irish and because I've met a lot of them before over the years, and you kind of feel like you know them. Um, it's different when when somebody like Nick Cave sits down. Like I mean, that's somebody of you know like Bob Dylan kind of stature to to me anyway. Um. So yeah, when when he sat down at the piano and started into Rainy Night in Soho, I was like, "This is something very, very special that's going on here." You know. Jeez, I only just thought of that. You did a Nick Cave song on one of your albums, didn't you? No night out in the jail. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There I you go. I don't actually think. I don't think it's a Nick Cave original. I, I think it. It, it uh, that song originated in Australia, but it was certainly his version of it that. Uh, uh, came to came to us first when I was playing with the Black Donnellys and uh, and yeah we we done a version of that. Right, it's a brilliant, know. it's a brilliant version of the song. We will get the Nick Cave songs at some other days, right? But I want to ask you, George, about what's your relationship to Shane McGowan? You mentioned him as probably being the best songwriter ever to come out of our island, right? Um, can you remember? Did you ever meet him? Did you ever sing with him at all? Did you? Um, I never actually sang with Shane. Um, but. Uh, a few funny stories, but like I, I replaced Shane on a few occasions, um, and I, I don't even know if if it's something that he'd be overly aware of. But I, I remember one such time, um, I got a phone call from the Podge and Rod show on uh, on RTE, and um, it was they, they were recording their Christmas special, and they asked me it was on the day, and they asked me would I come in that day. Now I was scheduled to be doing my own kind of interview with them in January in the new year at the time. Um, and I said, how come like you're you're calling me in on the day today for the Christmas special instead? And they said, well, we were expecting to have Shane McGowan, but we can't get him on the phone. And uh, we don't think he's going to turn up. So we need to have somebody come come in to do it. So I said, look, no problem. I'll, I'll come in and do it. Um, but I said, I and I understand that the, the puppets kind of are going to take the, the piss out of me because that's that's what they do or whatever. I said, but I don't want the piss to be ripped out of me for being Shane McGowan's replacement because I think that'll just make me look like a feckin' idiot, you know? And they said, no, absolutely. Look, we're, we'll slag you and we'll have the crack and blah, blah, blah. But we won't go there because that'd be bad for me. You're doing us a favour at the end of the day. 
So I was like, okay, grand. So in I went and I'm sat in the studio, um, all makeup on and dress rehearsals done and mic'd up and ready to go. And who walks in the door? Only feckin' Shane McGowan. <laughs> so, <laughs> Better late so than I'm, never. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sat there then going, okay, well, this is awkward. What do we do now? And uh, the the people in uh, the kind of the team um, that were there, they just kind of said, look, we'll interview you both. So I got uh, they they just kind of put the pair of us to to the interview and uh, I think they wanted him to do a song but uh, he was a little bit intoxicated so um, so I got up and done a song then instead but, and that was just one time then there was another time uh, the Dubliners were doing a week in um, in the Gaiety and the first three nights of the week I was the special guest and the the next four nights two of the nights were Ronnie Drew as a guest and two of the nights were Shane McGowan as a guest so i went on one of the nights that McGowan was playing because i wanted to see him with the dubliners um and so i had done my three nights and then i was going just as a spectator on one of the other nights to see Shane and Shane failed to make it so i was called from the audience and i there, there was people there that were they were disappointed because they weren't there to see George Murphy they were there to see Shane McGowan and and in fairness i understand that i sure i went to see Shane McGowan myself and if i was going to see Shane McGowan and they throw fucking me up on stage instead I, I think that's enough to to piss people off a little bit you know what i mean but sure but yeah that was that was an, another time i got the opportunity to replace him but i, I sat in his company on a few occasions and i had a couple of brief chats with him and stuff like that but I never had the uh, the honor of singing with the man, you know. How did he come across to you? Because he could be the kind of fellow where you know he'd mumble that kind of thing, but when he wanted to talk to you, he could be very lucid and he could be very engaging, like you know. And like I only met him once or twice, but he struck me as somebody, especially for people who had a background in music like yourself, that you know he was really interested in other singers, you know, people who had songs and this kind of stuff as well, you know. Yeah, well, no, definitely, and I. I I think the thing about it is, and, and, the, and the really sad um, thing when it comes to, to Shane is that, that I suppose the level of, of drink and drugs over the years, um, he, he was vacant a lot of the time. I mean, even even Victoria uh, um, said it on the altar. She said, like, he used to love to go on journeys, but these journeys mightn't have actually been physical journeys. He said there'd be journeys in his mind where he'd be, you know, he might be physically sitting in the room across from me, but mentally he's somewhere else entirely. And uh, and and he enjoyed doing that and whatever substances he needed to take to go on them trips where, wherever he was going in his head, that that was the world he kind of wanted to be in. So it, it's almost as if he spent a lot of time like he might have been physically present, but but he 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 wasn't he wasn't even there a lot of the time. And yet, you know, that, that was enough for people to maybe, you know, dismiss him at times and think, oh Jesus, Shane's out of it again, or he's drunk, or he's he's off his mind on something. But you know, you, you can't write lyrics and stories and and come up with, with the things he came up with unless you're an extremely intelligent individual, um, well-read, um, probably a very good historian and stuff like that as well. So I think people sometimes tend to forget the, the credit that's due there um, because they remember, you know, the, the guy who turned up as a drunken mess a lot of the time um, and they associate that with the, with the Shane McGowan um, of the last kind of 20 years and whatever it, whatever it is. But like, 
his genius is unquestionable. Like the stuff he's written and the stuff that the, the music he's left behind. Uh, Bruce Springsteen said it about him saying that like in a hundred years when we're all dead and gone, like people will still be singing Shane McGowan songs. And I truly believe that to be the truth. And for us to have lived in a time where he was here. Now, I, I put up a post on social media there um, the other day um. And it was to do with the fact that in one year we've lost Shane McGowan, we've lost Sinead O'Connor, and we've lost Christy Dignam. And they're, like they're three absolute, you know, icons of the Irish music world. Um, and for all of them to go in the one year, it's just it's it's hard to believe. And 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 to have known them all and 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 to work with them and stuff like that. And it it, it is something you look back on in. 40, 40 years time and kind of just say that, that they were all one of a kind, you know? I mean, it's amazing to think, I can't think of any other country in the world who has had that sort of level of loss from their cultural icons in such a short space of time. Now, Christy had been sick for a long time. Sinead yeah. came as a shock. Maybe Shane a little bit less so because we were kind of expecting this when he was 40, never mind 65. What was your, yeah. your favourite song of his, George? Oh, God, that... Jeez, I'm, I'm thinking on the spot here now. There's, uh, I, I suppose, different times for different moods. I mean, like, obviously, to say Fairy Tale in New York, well, I don't know if I could say that that's my favorite Shane song, but it's definitely my favorite Christmas song. And mm. I, I, I definitely think it's the best Christmas song ever written, but I probably wouldn't listen to it in the summer. Do you know <laughs> I mean, there's a certain there's a certain time of year for that song, but but I'd never turn it off. Like it's it's one of them songs I've I've never got fed up of I've never got sick of I could be sitting in my car and I might hear it twenty times over the Christmas period, but every time it comes on I'll be singing along and I'll be hiring up the radio and stuff like that. But that that's that's a song for a specific time, um, of year. Whereas you know things like a pair of brown eyes and a rainy night in Soho, um, you know, or or some of the some of the quicker ones, um, you know, streams of whiskey and. The Irish Rover and the sick bed of Coo Cullen. I mean, they're just there's so many to to narrow it down to just one. I think, and um, but if I was really really pushed on it, I I might go for a rainy night in Soho. I think it's just a, just a fantastic fantastic piece of work, you know. All right, let let me change that question just a little bit. So it's still kind of the same question, but not. If I said to you, George Murphy, you have to sing a Shane McGowan song now, which one would you pick? I would probably go for a pair of brown eyes just because I think it's more suited to my vocal kind of mm. delivery. Um, I, I, funny enough, you ask because I, I was asked to get up the other night and sing at the afters, and I, I done, I done the Irish Rover, um, and I, I do love the chaos of some of the um faster Pogues material, um the the one like when when the drums kick in on some of our songs like uh Siesta and Sally McLennan and and them kind of really quick ones that you can just sink your teeth into. But um as a singer, I prefer a kind of a slower ballad. I prefer a song that like is uh, you know big long drawn out notes because they they're they're the ones that vocally you can kind of show off on more. So I think I think if I was getting up to sing a Shane song, I probably prefer to sing something like a pair of brown eyes or a rainy night in Soho or um, the broad majestic Shannon or something like that. You know. Mm. 
Um, tell us about what happened afterwards. I mean, did you go to the graveyard and all that kind of thing? I'm not sure if Shane was being brought off to be cremated or what happened after that. But what happened when the cameras were turned off, so to speak? Well, ba basically, there was um, a certain select uh, amount of people were invited back to uh, to an after session and um, and to have a few drinks and a kind of a sing song. And there's a band called the Cronins. And they kind of became Shane's band in his in his latter years when when he ever he was making um uh appearances on the likes of TV or radio or stuff like that. They came in. They were a local band down around the Tipperary direction. Um the boys are originally from the UK though, and, and they go way back with Shane. They 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 know him years. Uh really, really sound lads, Mick and Johnny Cronin. Um a really, really good band. Um have their own material as well, but on the night they played pretty much mostly all Shane stuff, and uh, and there was just people there from all different times in Shane's life. Um, there, there was a a lady, uh, who was in a in a band with Shane before the Pogues, and uh, they called themselves like oh, the the Nips or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the or Nips. The, the... It was the Nipple Erectors. Then they were called the yeah. Nips because they couldn't say that on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the the, the Nipple Erectors, and your one was there, and she was called up. To play guitar and do a song, and they they done a song by the by the Nips, and uh, and and the the lads in Cronin knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, they knew the song and they played that. And then Imelda May was called up, and she done a a, a lovely version of a Shane song. Um, Glenn Hansard got up. I was called to the mic, and we all just took turns sharing um sharing songs of Shane. Sharon Shannon was there, and the, the, the Spider Stacy. Uh, got up and uh, and played um the the whistle with me and then he done a savage version of uh, Paddy on the railway, um and it was just song after song and drink after drink and and really I mean I think what struck me most about it was even though it's such a a loss for people there was no the the sadness wasn't on display uh, that that day it seemed it was it was a day for celebration it wasn't a day for for tears and uh, and sadness, it was a day for kind of joy and 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 remembering the the brilliant songs that he left behind. And I'm not I'm not saying that the, that there isn't sadness. Of course, there's there's got there's bound to be sadness, but it's it's almost like that was left for another day. Let let's save our tears for another day and 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 just and use today to remember Shane, remember his songs and sing them loud and sing them proud, you know, and that's what we did until the early hours of the morning. And it was great because, you know, like the, the likes of a pair of brown eyes and a rainy night in Soho, like it was it was probably performed three and four times on the night because other like an hour had passed and somebody else wanted to do a version of it and, and they'd get up and sing it again and then someone else would be up and then they'd do another version of something else that was on an hour beforehand and and it didn't matter. Nobody cared and a fairy tale in New York probably got um kicked out about two or three times as well, you know, and it, it was just lovely. It was magical. There was a there was a special um feeling in the room of like, you know, I, I, like you said, pinch yourself stuff, like just like that, that this is a one-off kind of occasion, you know. Mm. Um, your own career has been fascinating, right? Because you shot to fame, obviously, uh, on it was it called Eurostar when you were on it, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the that was the show, yeah. 
Yeah, but then it, it sort of changed because they tried to turn you into a sort of a pop idol on your second album. And there were some brilliant tunes on that second. You did a, a song called No Time for Cowboys that I can still hear Definitely. in my head, right? Yeah. But it wasn't it, it wasn't the kind of thing that maybe suits your voice or your personality or your style of singing. You know, you're not a pop man. You're a balladeer. No. You're a folk singer, you know. But you went yeah. back with the Rising Suns and you started to play in pubs, much as where Shane and where all of this music comes from, where is that at now? Are you still playing in pubs or, or what's the story with the Rising Stones at the moment? Well, yeah, so so we we started this session, um, Phil, and basically it was a weekly thing. We're, we're actually there this evening. Um, now, we, we don't still do it every week. Um, it's kind of more like once a month now that we, that we get together. Uh, and this will be the, the last time we do it this year. Um, that that we'll get together and play. Um, but it started over a few points and singing a few songs. And I put the word out online that I, I was looking for, you know, anybody that sang a song or played an instrument that wanted to come down and get involved and play a few songs with myself, that they were more than welcome to come down. And on the first night, we had, you know, banjos and whistles and fiddles and mandolins and bowrons and, you know, singers aplenty. And it was great. And then all of a sudden, the following week, a guy arrived down with an electric guitar and another guy arrived down with a bass guitar and it nearly had a bit more of a rock and roll feel to it. And I was kind of saying to them, I was like, look, lads, this isn't really the direction that we're going in. This is more of a session, more of an Irish kind of folk session. And the lads were saying, oh, well, look, we just saw um, we saw a message online saying if you played an instrument or, or wanted to get involved, that you could come down. Everybody was welcome. And I says, well, to be fair, that's true. That is what I said. I said, but we were more looking to make this kind of a more Irish kind of uh, folk thing. And they're like, okay, no problem, but can we plug in tonight and just see how we get on and play? And I said, absolutely. And then I was blown away by what I was hearing. These lads, like on the electric guitar and the bass and the percussion, they were just, they were, what's the best way to, they were nearly making a bed for us, for the rest of us to kind of just lie on, you know? So the whistles all of a sudden and the fiddles all of a sudden and, and the mandolins and the banjos, they were shining even more because they were there, there was already like a blanket down for them to kind of to, to to lie their stuff on. And I was saying to myself, God, if we can layer this stuff properly and we can actually put a bit of manners on it, there we could do something really, really big with this sound. Cause it was just a wall of sound, like it was so big. And I and I knew from previous times playing with the likes of the Black Donnellys and stuff like that, I knew that something special was going to happen in here. And I asked the lads then to come back the following week and I started telling them that I might start looking for gigs for us. Now, at the time, the lads were thinking like, you know, if we pick up a couple of gigs and 40 or 50 people come to see us, uh, wouldn't that be great? And fast forward to where we are now and we've just sold out Ficker Street. You know That's what I mean? And it's, yeah, it's, it's, and it's incredible. And, and to be doing it with people that are friends and neighbours around the area that have day jobs. I mean, my bass player... Is is a retired school teacher, a grandfather in his seventies, and he's just so happens to be one hell of a of a brilliant bass player. Uh, the electric guitarist is a painter and decorator. The the whistle player is a school teacher. Now I've I've an electrician, uh, a carpenter. Like it's just made up from people of all different walks of life, but they all happen to be fantastic musicians as well. And we we set our sights on playing in some venues and we never realized that we'd, we'd take it to the heights that we've taken it to. And we've just finished recording our first studio album, which will be out now next year, uh, contains a lot of our own material as well as some cool covers and uh, excited for what the future holds now, Phil, you know? 
It's amazing because I can't remember what year it was that you were on Eurostar. Was it 2003, something like that? No? Yeah, late 2003 is when I auditioned and then the live shows were in 2004. So it's coming that, up that, on, it's, it's 20 years now, like, you know. This is the thing, right? Because it seems to me like yesterday, because I knew you and I knew your dad. I knew your dad obviously better than you because you were very young when I moved here to Sweden. And I knew the Black Donnellys who you ended up, who ended up being your sort of house band, your backing band. And that whole yeah. amazing thing, it seems like yesterday, but yet it's been a very long and winding road for you to get to where you are today. Did it turn out the way you expected? Are you happy with the music that you're doing now, George? Yeah, I'm I'm happier now than I've kind of ever been, Phil, because, I mean, here, here's the weird thing. I, I went on the road for a couple of years with the High Kings and I probably never made more money or probably never got more exposure than I got during that time. But my heart wasn't in it. It, it was like, it, mm. to me, it was it was soul destroying. And I, I don't mean disrespect to, to the High Kings in saying that. It's just that it, 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 musically, it wasn't wetting my appetite. It wasn't creative enough for me. And while I was on a break from touring with the High Kings, I came home and set up that musical session. And I set up the session because I wanted to explore my creative side musically with people with like-minded people who just wanted to sit down and have a jam and drink a few pints and have the crack and see what we could come up with. Now, I never thought in my wildest dreams that that would turn into being, you know, a band that I would take on the road and, uh, and an album to be recorded and Vicar Street sold out. Like I didn't realize that all that stuff was going to happen, but I did realize that that was the journey I wanted to go on. Now, people thought I was mad. My my mom and dad and all saw me making really good money um, for the first time in a good few years because I'd hit a dip. Like when I, when I was 17, I had a number one album in the charts and things were going really, really well for me. But fast forward to when I was 27, 28, and, and you know, I wasn't making a huge amount of money. I was back playing in pubs. I was you know, scraping to get by. And then the the High Kings kind of threw me a bone and threw me a lifeline. And I started making life-changing money and get, getting life-changing opportunities again. And to turn my back on that and walk away from it was something that a lot of people thought was going to be a huge mistake for me. And the thing about it is, though, I'm not... Look, I bought a house out of the money that I made um, when I was playing with the High Kings. So I've, I've somewhere to raise my children and stuff like that. And that was important to me. But it's more important to me to stick to what I'm to what's true to me and to what I believe in musically and to get job satisfaction from that and feel like I'm in charge of my own destiny than it is to be part of something that you know, you're only in just to get the few quid into the bank. And it can't be about that musically for me. If if, if you're following something that you love, and and I am now, I'm, I'm following something like to, to, to get, the, I played in Vicar Street with the High Kings. It didn't mean a big deal to me. But now I'm playing in Vicar Street with the Rising Sons and it means absolutely everything to me. And, and that's the difference. It's, it's, it's following in the footsteps that you want to follow in and being your own boss and being in charge of your own kind of destiny. And I don't care if that means that I make less money, but I'll be happier. And, and I know that I, I'll have stayed true to, to what I wanted to do, you know? 
Uh, I can't wait to see it because I know you're going on tour now. You're going to be in Ireland. You're going to be up in the north of Ireland as well. I'm absolutely I'm convinced that when this album comes out, and I haven't even heard it yet, that hopefully the people who are listening to this around the world are going to get to see you in Australia and in Europe and in America. But before you go, George, what's the abiding memory that you'll take with you from the funeral on Friday? Because like you say, it was more a celebration than an occasion of sorrow. When you think back on this in five and 10 and 15 years time, if you're standing on the stage in Vicar Street, what story do you think you tell about that day? Um, I think one of the things that really stuck with me was about... Um, Shane's wife got up and said one of our kind of parting words about him was that he really just wanted to be loved. He he had that feeling in so he wanted to give love and he wanted to receive love, and that love was such an important factor in his life and in and in who he was. And when you looked around the room that day and the church that day. It felt more like a wedding than a funeral. People dancing in the aisles, people crying tears of joy, not tears of sadness, tears of like, you know, like this is fun. This is a special moment. This is a memorable moment. We're all going to sing and we're all going to dance. And there was nothing but love in the room. Um, and not just love for Shane, just love in general, love for the moment, love for the love for the occasion, love for the songs. Um, but he gave that to everybody he mightn't have been there himself to witness it but he's somewhere witnessing it and looking down on it and and that's what he created and that's what he left behind and it truly was Phil probably the most special memory I have musically um and there's been many I mean like I was asked to play for Robbie Keane's retirement party and like I'm such a big football fan and that was huge to me to play for Robbie Keane I was asked to play when Shane Lowry won the Claret Jug and I was asked to play when the the double the Dublin team won five in a row and they were having all their celebrations and so many of these things like Ronnie Drew's funeral and stuff like that I was at so many of these events and they were all very very special in their own way but there was something very different about the, a drum kit in the church, a grand piano rolled in for Nick Cave, um, like a, a full choir, uh, a brass section, uh, the Pogues, John Sheehan of the Dubliners. Like it was just an endless amount of talent and love and and. Just, yeah, love. Honestly, that if there's one word that I could take from it, it's love because that's what that's what Victoria said. She said that was the most important thing to him. He wanted to be loved and he wanted to spread love. And that that's what was infectious about the feeling in the church that day. Everybody was just there to... I mean, that ceremony started at half three. That church was full of half one. People got there two hours before the ceremony started because they wanted to make sure that they were there for the experience. The church car park outside was rammed full of people and there was PA set up out in the car park as well. Thousands of people there. Johnny Depp flying in from California. Nick Cave flying in. The Pogues flying in. Um, John Sheena, the Dubliners, Glenn Hansen. It's just endless amounts of people that just wanted to remember Shane and... If, like his wife said, that all he wanted was to be loved, then he certainly got that as his parting gift on that day, you know? 
Yeah, beautiful memories, George. And thanks so much for sharing them with us. No problem at all, Phil. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Pat. Was Christmas Eve in the drunk time? An old man said to me, Won't see another one. And then he sang a song. The I turn my face away and dream about you. Got on a lucky one. Came in eighteen to one. I've got a feeling this year's for me and you. So happy Christmas. I can see a better time when all our dreams come true.